get it made as Chinatown. Just wanted to say that. Such a quintessential Aussie sentiment. So I make my way here through Chinatown. So Australia didn't have an exclusive white Australia policy in 1780 or 1805. Only developed it around uh, the turn of the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century. So there used to be a lot more Chinese and Japanese here. Then after we got the exclusionary white Australia policy steadily implemented in the first 70 years of the 20th century, the number of uh, Chinese and Japanese in the country steadily declined. But we've always had a Chinatown here in Sydney. At Waxton, at Wayne. But now about uh, between 15 to 20% of Australia's population is Asian. And I was listening to Bridget Spencer here. He did an interview with a philosopher named David Skirbina. So let's play some of this. Yeah, so what it means to be divine definitely changes depending on time and place. So David Skirbina is an atheist and he's presenting his understanding of the mythology of the, of the origins of Christianity. Probably spoke to just a, a different perspective on what the gods were. And in some ways, you know, fundamentalists of today are more rigorous and demanding a kind of historicity. I mean, I, I even remember when I went to an Episcopalian service the last Easter, um, the priest. Yeah, there's no sense of historicity in the, the 13th century, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. People weren't talking about historicity. So that's a relatively post-enlightenment concern. Credit, I, I, would, I would say. I said, you have to believe this. You, this isn't just some narrative that you can draw from. You, you actually have to. Yeah, even the very notion of, of belief is different. So the ancients experienced the world differently. So it's not just a matter that conservatives and liberals believe different things. They experience different things. To be conservative is to have more of a traditional or medieval mindset. Obviously, some conservatives are more medieval than others. But to be liberal is to have a more modern mindset. What do you mean by modern? We get down to here different understandings of the self, right? The liberal modern conception is the self is buffered, is strategic, autonomous, basically good, rational. And the traditional sense of the self is that it's porous, right? What's going on outside of it affects it and uh, tends towards uh, wickedness. 
and so we have these two very definitions, various definitions of the self. And so conservatives experience the world differently from liberals, right? There's more magic in the conservative or traditional worldview. There's, uh, there's, there's higher realm of the sacred. Right? And so it's not so much a matter of belief, but conservatives have experienced the divine differently than modern liberals. And so the ancients too experienced divinity differently. They, they experienced divinity in a thunderstorm. Right? They experienced divinity in an earthquake. All right? So they are much more mindful of sacred spaces, sacred peoples, than the moderns who increasingly live in a less magical, mystical world. Boy, so you not only drive on the left side here in Australia, you also walk on the left side. I think in some ways to his credit, he was taking his religion seriously, but I think maybe in the ancient world, um, they, they just had a different perspective on the divine, and to, to suggest that, you know, did Zeus really come down and, um, you know, Father Perseus, or, this was kind of missing the whole point, and we're kind of projecting our own, you know, viewpoints backwards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a very modern scientific way of thinking, right? To ask for evidence and construct logical arguments for proofs. Right, to ask for evidence to construct logical arguments, right? This is, uh, this is a different way of thinking than what the ancients or the medievalists experienced. ancient world, if uh, your country won in a conflict, or your people won in a conflict, like your god won, and the conquered peoples accepted your deity. It wasn't so much a matter of belief, it was a matter of real life experience. People experienced in that world, and they experienced the, the divine in a whole different way than we do. Yeah, so that is somewhere where uh, Judaism and Christianity are different, that these are religions that make historical claims that uh, God entered human history. So, you know, if, if you understand your religion, you're not really religious, all right? <laughs> like, if you understand spirituality, you're not really spiritual, all right? For a genuine religious or spiritual person, this is a realm of mystery. And you only get 
intimations about how it works. So to understand outside of religion and try to understand it using you know, secular rational terms, you have left the religious experience. Modern about Christianity in the sense that it was a real God, a you know a, a, a somewhat poor carpenter who came out and spoke and told moral lessons. It, it's something that can kind of appeal in a way to a more modern sensibility, uh, but that kind of blinds us to the, the mythic quality and the essence of Christianity as well. Look at, you know, keep, right, I mean, the, the New Testament does read like, kind of like a transcript at points about what Jesus mm -hmm. said. It's like you're actually sort of there. That was kind of the idea. But of course, you know, that, that general idea had been around for a long time. I mean, we can go back to Plato's Apology, which is basically a transcript of what Socrates said in his own defense, and it was 500 years, 400 years prior to the time of Jesus. So, so everything has similarities with what went before it and differences. Right? So there are similarities between Judaism and the cultures and religions that surrounded it and in which it was embedded. There are similarities and there are differences. There are similarities between Christianity and the cultures from which it arose and differences. That just because you notice things that are similar between Judaism or Christianity or Islam and the cultures from which these religions arose doesn't mean that you deny that there aren't innovations and changes. Right? You could list off you know, five ways that I'm different from Laponius. That doesn't mean that there aren't 15 ways that were similar. So there was a long intellectual tradition of that happening, and, and I highly suspect that Paul and the New Testament writers were aware of that tradition. And of course they were aware of the mythological uh, traditions, the pagan traditions, and I think they sort of saw this little blending, merging of the intellectual respect. So Christianity is explicitly claiming to be grafted on to the, to the religion of the Jews. But what's not explicit in Christianity are as profound roots in... Hellenic mystery cult religion. Right, that's not made explicit, but it's just under the surface. So Christianity throughout its history is kind of oscillated from the Hellenic mystery cult, pagan ritual sacrifice cults, and its Jewish elements. So, during the course of the 19th century, it appeared that uh, biblical criticism was just going to completely destroy Christianity. But then Christianity took a turn away from historical criticism to other forms of textual criticism that weren't as threatening to its fundamental theology. And then there was, uh, you know, figures like Bruno Bauer, uh, who uh, Marx got into uh, various disputes with, but, but there was, a, there was a, a kind of atheism brewing out of the Hegelian tradition, um, you could say, as well. But maybe talk a little bit about that tradition, because I, I actually find that interesting. You know, we, we sometimes seem to be reinventing the wheel of, you know, new atheism, or, you know, Richard Dawkins was the first man to ever question whether God exists. And, and that's actually kind of ridiculous, that this is a, a very long tradition. Maybe talk a little bit about that. I, I find that intellectual history really interesting, and then also how 
your, um, your your version of this is um, is, is quite different, in fact. Yeah. All right, so skepticism about the gods, I mean, you're right, that goes way, way back. I mean, I, I would go back again to the ancient Greeks, you know, because, uh, you know, Socrates talked very little about the gods or just sort of in a little hand-waving kind of way. And, yeah. You know, Plato talked about the demiurge, you know, it's, you know, the world soul, but those are sort of very distant, abstract things. And Aristotle kind of had this world mind that was kind of turning the cosmos, but again, a very abstract philosophical kind of being. Um, so, so you know, they, in, in no sense were those like sort of modern gods, which is like a personal being that you can kind of talk to and you pray to him and he, you know, gives you forgiveness and so forth. So, I mean, that's those, those are very old ideas, right? To sort of be skeptical about gods that look like humans, the anthropomorphized kind of mm-hmm. gods that we are, have traditionally associated with religions. Um, and that, that kind of comes and goes over the, over the years. Of course, with science, right? That gave, gave it a whole new book, books, right, in the 1700s in particular. Scientific reasoning, you know, starts to say, well, look, we don't even need these, these mythological tales anymore. We can just talk about materialistic explanations of things. And then they look at the Christian story and they say, oh, by the way, there's a lot of weird contradictions in that story and things that don't seem to make sense. At the same time, the German anthropologists are digging up, you know, ruins and, and hunting for evidence in the Middle East. And they're finding that things aren't where they're supposed to be, and they're not finding evidence of cities that are mentioned. They're like, well, maybe that city never actually existed. You know, maybe this thing is a lot newer than it would seem to be, or maybe a lot older than it seemed to be. And they were starting to get actual data that was conflicting with the story, and the story had internal contradictions. And then that raised people like, yeah, Bruno Bauer and Reimers and, and uh, you know, early, you know, uh, David Strauss, who were really kind of, really started to press hard on the Christian story. And they're like, hey, this just don't fly. There's, there's major problems here, <laughs> internal and external. And that really started the ball rolling, right, I think. Definitely. Um, so, so what are what you are offering really is I guess is kind of picking up on um, instances in Nietzsche of focusing on Paul, and I, I think you actually laid out in your book quite well where you're saying okay you know there there is a lot of you know mythical criticism of uh, of the Bible and so on, but we actually need to get to intention and motivation, and this wasn't just some accident or or honest mistake in the sense that the people doing this really believed it. Um, at, at some point, they were consciously creating that they wanted to have, uh, that, that they wanted to have an effect in the world. And so, yeah, granted, when we're looking back in history, you always have to use some informed speculation. You can't know things for sure, but you actually... So in politics, you often see people lying you know, for a noble cause. So, and Republicans say that Joe Biden's not the legitimately elected uh, president of the United States. They're lying for what they see as a noble cause of, of rallying the, the Republican base. And you know, crusaders against this or that will often you know, exaggerate the harms of whatever it is that they're crusading against. So lying or exaggerating in service of a noble cause or in service of your people, very common human phenomenon. It's not just restricted to religion. So can intuit uh, a certain intent and motivation uh, in people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I think there's a very clear motivation. I think Nietzsche was maybe one of the first to pick up on it, uh, although it wasn't really very clear because just the way Nietzsche writes, it's sort of scattered bits and pieces in his writings. It takes a lot of work to pull those threads together. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Nietzsche had the right, right basic picture. The picture is you got, you got uh, Jewish power structure, Jewish tribes who were in power in Judea and Samaria. Until 63 BC, when the Romans come marching in and throw them out of power, the Romans take over, and the Jews, like anybody else, would have been highly incensed at these foreign intruders. Okay, so that's important for understanding the origins of Christianity. That uh, there wasn't a Jewish power structure running Palestine at the time of Jesus. The Romans were running it. It was the Romans who would crucify people. Crucifixion was not something that uh, Jews practiced. Uh, crucifixion was something that uh, Jews found horrific. So Romans are kind of shadowy characters in the New Testament. G'day, mate. Forty here, listening to Richard Spencer's conversation with his philosopher David Scarbina. Intruders. Threw them out 
probably pilfered their temples, you know, and extracted taxes and tributes and so forth. So he's talking about when the Romans took control of Palestine, they took, they stole, they murdered, they raped, right? So in the Gospels, the Romans are these kind of shadowy figures, right? Even though they're the ones who are actually running things in the first century of Palestine at the time of Jesus. Yeah, obviously a lot of resentment and a lot of anger there by the people who were in charge, which was the, the various Jewish tribes. Um, the people who were there. You think? You know, normally people are excited to be invaded and conquered and have, you know, foreigners ruling them. Really? They're the masses to, to them, and I sort of portrayed it in the book this way, saying it's kind of a change of government. Okay, we, you know, we used to be ruled by the Jews, okay, now we're ruled by the Romans, and actually the Romans got some pretty cool stuff that they're bringing in here that we've never seen before. So you can imagine, even for the, the masses, it was actually a positive move. I mean, that they, 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 they saw some gains, and okay, you know, we never really like the Jews anyway, so we're happy to have the Romans. Yeah, so the kingdom of heaven, from a Jewish perspective 2,000 years ago, meant self-rule, right? Jews in control of their own destiny. Right, it wasn't an otherworldly thing. It wasn't, you know, salvation to another world. It was about salvation in this world, away from the barbaric Romans and their cruel regime. Come in and sort of run the show. But, but obviously the Jews have been highly insensitive in this whole situation. And we know this because there's a story of the early resistance movement that comes right around the year zero. Uh, so yeah, there are many different Jewish responses to the Romans, right? Some just tried to make the best of things, right? Just accede uh, to the power. Another approach was like revolution and assassination, right? So many different Jewish approaches 2,000 years ago. There are many different Jewish sects. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the uh, Zealots. The assassins, kind of you know, renegade killers trying to uh, assassinate individual Romans as a way to uh, attack them, you know, to, to, to get back at them. Okay, of course, you're facing the largest military in the world, so you have uh, limited options at that point. But obviously, individual small scale attacks were working, so there was more movement foot there. Um, but I, I sort of speculated, you know, the intellectuals like, like Paul, who was an intellectual, he was, you know, well educated elite uh, Jew, and you know, he would likely have known that hey, this little stabbings and killings was probably not going to really do it in the long run. And so, Paul had a tremendous imagination. There's no evidence that he was much of a scholar, no evidence that he could even read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. So he was not a scholar of things Jewish. His claims about having studied Rabban Gamliel are lies, because to study with Rabban Gamliel, you'd have to speak Hebrew. There's all evidence we have is that uh, Paul could not speak Hebrew. Like he, he was relying upon Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh what Christians called the Old Testament. So from everything we know, Paul didn't speak Hebrew. Paul, I think, was from Tiberias. There were no Jewish academies there. All right, so he was Jewishly ignorant, but had a superficial understanding of the Hebrew Bible gained through the Greek translation Septuagint, and he had ambition and imagination. And we have to think sort of harder and deeper about how we can go about really undermining the basis for the Romans. We can't just kill them off one by one. That'll take centuries. So we, we need to try something else. We need to try to attack their basic picture of the world, the structure of their belief system, their, their, you know, the moral basis for the worldview. And, 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 and okay, I don't think it holds up to see the Apostle Paul as being primarily motivated by trying to take down the Romans. And there isn't a lot of anti-Roman sentiment in the Apostle Paul. There's some, but there's plenty of render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Uh, there's some... Uh, 
anti-Jewish sentiment. Right, so it's not unknown that a person with an above average intelligence such as Paul will sell something to the masses that uh, he thinks will get the masses moving in a direction he likes. So see the same kind of phenomenon with Donald Trump. He's the great prole whisperer. You know, he knows how to speak to the 95 IQ crowd like uh, almost no other politician in, in the last 20 years. Paul was not a systematic thinker, he was not a systematic theologian, but he was someone with a tremendous imagination. If you understand your religion, you're not really religious. So, of course, most people don't have a profound understanding of their own religion. It just just happens to be the social club that they were raised in. Well, these weren't sects of Christianity. They were sects of the, the Jesus movement. There wasn't really a Christianity in the first century. That's that's wrong. That's heretical. This is this is the right way. Um, uh, so he, he's a kind of movement organizer is the best way of describing him. And but, but there's the other thing that that I would that I would stress is that Paul found Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, so you know, again, he, there's the story of the you know trip to Damascus and an epiphany and so on. But he's he, he never met the historical figure Jesus if, if he existed. He kind of found him in the text. And so um, Christianity is profoundly Jewish in that sense. Uh, it, it isn't, it, it, there isn't. Okay, Christianity isn't profoundly Jewish because Paul was able to read Jesus into the text of the Hebrew Bible any more than Buddhism would be profoundly 40 just because I'm able to say read the sacred text of Buddhism and see myself foretold there. Islam is not profoundly 40 if I can read the Quran and see myself prophesied there. Right? Your ability to read your imagination into some ancient text doesn't mean that it's really there in the text. You know, right? It doesn't make Christianity profoundly Jewish. It isn't like you know God you know chose the Jews for a time and then He just created this whole new thing. You know, it has nothing to do with the, the Old Testament. No, um, the the myth of Jesus and even the story of Jesus emerged from the Old Testament. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't important differences, but of course there are. But it, it is profoundly Jewish in its inception. No, that doesn't make it profoundly Jewish, right? There are claims, right, wanting to to take on the mantle of things Jewish, 
but uh, reading you know, reading Jesus into the Hebrew Bible doesn't make Christianity profoundly Jewish. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was the milieu. That was the context in which everything emerged. I mean, you know, the Paul is an elite educated Jew. I mean, he's, he's going to think in the Jewish terms like Jews do today. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Uh, Paul was not educated Jewishly. He couldn't even read Hebrew. He was there's absolutely no basis to believe that he was literate in Hebrew. All evidence shows that he couldn't read Hebrew ago. He was a Jewishly ignorant Jew. And he, he's going to draw from his background. He has expertise in the Old Testament. Certainly, certainly he did. He really knew, knew the... Uh... He didn't know the Hebrew Bible. He relied on a Hebrew translation. Just shows you how ignorant he was. Yeah, you'd have to. You can read anything you want into a text, including the Hebrew Bible. So that's eisegesis when you read a meaning into the text. Exegesis is when you deduce a meaning from the text. So Christianity is engaged in eisegesis, not exegesis. Yeah, and you can do all that from a translation. You don't need to know the Hebrew to come up with these imaginative roaming. Weave those into the life of someone who existed and make kind of an interesting and compelling new story. Right, and in Daniel, there, there is the image of a, a suffering Christ, a suffering Messiah, which I, I think would go against other versions of the Messiah who, who would be more David-like, that they would be a warrior king who would come out of nowhere and start kicking ass. Okay, the notion of some suffering Messiah who takes the world's sins upon his shoulders is unknown in Judaism. Yes, obviously that Jesus doesn't do that at all. But again, there is very strong precedent. I mean, and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 refers to the Jewish people. Right? It refers to Israel. It doesn't refer to an individual. I mean, 
I, I've been exposed also to, to, to Daniel um, in the sense of uh, many, particularly Protestant Christians, will say, you know, this is the text that the Jews don't want don't want to know about because this just let me just fast they, forward they, through this nonsense. And of course, that was a very hard sell at the time because the Jews were just crushed. I mean, the Romans rolled in and boom, there you know, they're just yeah. It was a hard sell then. It was a hard sell a hundred years later. It was a hard sell two hundred years later. Like Jews who know anything about Judaism and the Hebrew Bible just simply don't buy the claims of Christianity. They don't buy the claims made for, for Jesus. Right? Only Jewishly ignorant Jews can buy into this. Because it's completely repellent from a Jewish perspective. The idea of this cannibalistic ritual sacrifice where you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the God who's been sent to earth to die on a cross. Right? This is all repellent from a Jewish perspective. So, so you, you, you were hard pressed to look for a warrior king who was going to save you at that point. It was a lot easier to find the suffering victim. <clears throat> me. Uh, Jews have never looked for a Messiah who's a suffering victim. Right? First of all, the doctrine of the Messiah plays very little importance in the way that Jews lead their lives. Right? It's an esoteric you know, piece of uh, storytelling that uh, doesn't have much practical significance. And then, to the extent it does have a significance, it's never some individual suffering for the world's sins. The suffering victim who took a moral position, got himself killed, and now he's, you know, a loved of God because he was such a great guy. That's a whole lot easier story to sell at the time that Paul is, you know, constructing his, his, his theory. Yeah, it was an easier story to sell to Gentiles. Not an easy story to sell to Jews. Jews are a tough audience. you ever spoken to a group of Jews, you know that they're kind of feisty and have one very nice... Protestant friend who had a lot of Jews at her event like right in the middle of her talk someone stood up and said some Jews stood up and said I've never heard such nonsense you know my whole life like, Jews Jews are a tough audience they they don't uh, just sit back and passively buy into things so yeah it makes sense Paul must have known both sides he would have known about the warrior king side and sort of the suffering savior and he's like alright I'll take, I'll take that suffering savior because I can match that to the guy who got crucified a couple years ago and I can make a good story out of that yeah, that wouldn't sell to Jews. That would sell to more credulous non-Jews. Do you, do you think that Paul's motivation, motivations were ideological in the sense, and in some ways cryptic in the sense that he was trying to create this ideology that would undermine the Roman ideology and, and many ideologies of yeah, Paul had a tremendous imagination, right? He had a gift with words. He had a high verbal IQ. Don't think you need to go deeper than that. Outside the Sydney Opera House, listening to uh, Richard Spencer talk to philosopher David Skurbina. Anti-Roman side, maybe you know, get to the Bible, the kind of basic Jewish goodness. Um, maybe that'll serve two or three purposes. I, I can guess that kind of thing was maybe going on in Paul's mind. You don't know how much he was really planning. You know, a lot of this kind of, I don't know, you know, maybe it's sort of spun out of control. It was kind of ran, you know, ran away from him. It's hard to tell with Paul because it's such a sketch of theology, and all the, all the details that we know don't come until later. So. Paul either didn't know or really had nothing to do with all, all the later details about what the, the meek Jesus did and said. I mean, there's none of that in Paul. Right? right. It's just the Savior's here. He died. You, and he went to heaven. And you, you could go to heaven too. Very bare bones. But you know, even that, even even that was enough to a get you opposed to the Roman pantheon, Roman theology. Yeah. And b, according to Nietzsche, I mean, that that alone was a highly destructive move because now suddenly the, the, your your real world, your saved world, is in the beyond. Right. after you die. This world is kind of the pain and suffering and you're carrying your cross with Jesus and you're suffering like him and maybe you're dying on the cross or whatever. So this world is a nasty, ugly, suffering place and the next world is a good place and that's what you're looking forward to. And, and um, both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche kind of said, well, look, this is a highly destructive view of life. I mean, you're supposed to be a creature. 
Okay, so it's not just a highly destructive view of life. It has some upsides and downsides like everything else. So telling people that the next world will be much, much better, right, that's going to act as an opiate that's going to reduce pain in this life. But it comes at a price that it makes this life you know, less important. So people are likely to be less passionate about this life if they believe the next life is more important than this life. But it's also a very easy drug to sell. You're of the world, you're in the world, you're part of the world, you know, you're, you're uh, you know, a normal human being wants to live a good life, to be happy, to be satisfied with how things are. And that view every day is kind of a tribulation and a trial and suffering and pain and nastiness and, you know, maybe, maybe I hope someday I'll be better when I'm gone. So, so both Job and Arnica said this is a highly life-denying, life-negative view of the world because the true life is the afterlife. It's not, right. it's not this world, it's not here now, it's the next one. And that has all kinds of repercussions uh, about how you live your life and attitudes towards things and other people and towards your own health and towards sickness. I mean, really very far-reaching consequences that I, I suspect neither Paul nor the gospel writers really, really knew about. It. I mean, they just wanted it. They just wanted a really good hook. They wanted to really hook people in. Well, what's a better hook than you get to live forever, man? You don't have to die. You get to live forever in a happy place. And to me, that was just a big hook to, to get the people in. But there's a lot of really negative consequences for society. I can't imagine if uh, people were at the Sydney Opera House on Sydney Harbour, looking out at the beautiful Sydney Harbour Bridge, seeing all these happy, healthy people. I can't imagine that they'd primarily be looking forward to uh, the next life rather than this life. I think the more miserable you are, the more you're going to look forward to the next life. The happier you are, the more you want to make something of this life. Society over the years, I think that was to, to their credit, that's what both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche really, really latched onto and they really stressed that point. Right. Well, what are some of those consequences? Because there, I, I think there, there are a lot of contradictions and intentions within Christianity. First off, what you were saying, and, and, and also what, what Nietzsche said about Christianity, I mean, this is obviously true. You're, you're rejecting the world. It's a veil of tears, and, and, et cetera. That's only an aspect of Christianity, right? That's the Hellenic mystery cult aspect of Christianity to reject this world. There are also this-worldly affirmations of Christianity. The afterlife is for losers and puftas. God forbid, God forbid. I think it that line of words comes from the Psalms, comes from the Old Testament, so all of these things have presence. But, you know, um, at the same time, Christianity does exist as a kind of fertility cult. I mean, it is directly... And the chat says, I'm 24 years old, I have no friends, no future, no job skills. It's uh, time that I confront reality. Yes. And uh, you're already doing that, mate. i got great news for you. You're already confronting reality by what you just spelled out, if that's accurate then you are well on the way towards embracing reality and therefore making progress to succeed in this world. Being Christian, whatever the cause might be, being Christian is directly correlated with having babies. Uh, well, that's a really interesting point because I think actually that's not true. Or that was actually, I think it was a so Christianity acts right now as a natalist movement, but you'll find plenty of things in the tradition all right, that is anti-natalist, against having kids. So it varies. Very, well, relatively recent It's complicated. And there's some really interesting stuff, particularly in Schopenhauer. If you read his, the second volume of the prayer got parallel with Bonina, mm-hmm. which is really kind of a, uh, uh, not a book, but Schopenhauer really does a, a, a really striking job. He argues that Paul was really anti-family, anti-natalist. And uh, Media Hits says, says there's no tide to fight against in Sydney. And... Australia's had fairly rigorous immigration policies, and so we don't have high rates of crime. Right? It's the best place in the world to be an average bloke. So life is pretty good. Yeah, 
Yeah, but life isn't just theory, right? You got a theory that brings people together, all right? Then it's already on its path to being natalist, right? You bring men and women together, they're going to copulate and have kids and they're going to form bonds and uh, build families. So it's about uh, 68 degrees and sunny this Friday afternoon. It is 3.15 p.m. in Australia. So here the philosopher is concentrating on the words and the theory, all right? But uh, words and theory are not necessarily the things that are most determinative, all right? Philosophers love words, academics love words. There's no November here, but there is still no nut November. Even though it's gorgeous, there's still a no nut November, guys. Uh, speaking as the no fat maximalist. Yeah, but uh, that's just the words, right? And the words don't mean nothing, but they're not necessarily determinative. There are things more important than words, such as the effects of words. It's, it's an interesting thing. If I was really wanting to screw up your society, I might try to say, God doesn't really want you to have children. He wants you to devote yourself to him. Be monk-like or be nun-like. What are those people? Why are they chased, right? Because that's part of the story. Well, somehow... Somehow, Christianity survived for 2,000 years because... It has been substantially natalist, despite these anti-natalist parts in its theory and scriptures. Being completely devoted to God and don't have sex and don't have kids. And that, I think that was a very strong argument. It really does a brilliant job of explaining that that was really there in, in all through those, the, the New Testament, the, all aspects of the New Testament. It was only later, a couple hundred years later, when, when the, the, uh, the non-Jewish Christians figured out, like, hey, man, this is a losing strategy. We want a big religion. We want big families and lots of followers. So we got to drop that anti-natalist thing and start saying, hey, we need to have lots of kids. So they just sort of just push that all. Yeah, nonverbal cues hold more power than barbs thrown in chat rooms. So words only account for about 10% of communication. Right? What's much more important is the emotional state, the, the, the body language, all right, the, the context, all right. Words, words are only a minor part of communication. That all stuff to the side. They ignored what Paul said in the, in the gospel letters, and they somehow out of the blue kind of pulled them all be fruitful and multiply, you know, right. Old Testament stuff, and they applied yeah. it to New Testament, even though Jesus didn't say that, and then they turned it into a very, you know, family-friendly, big family, have the kids, very Catholic kind of view. Yeah. It's not there in the original view, and that's, that accords with the Jesus hoax theory, which says it was kind of a Jewish kind of thing that was meant to undermine the pagan masses, and that's, that's a good way to do it. Get them to not have good relationships, get them to not have sex, get them to not reproduce. Well, what the heck, I know that. Okay. Christianity was not some Jewish conspiracy to undermine the pagan masses and get them not to have kids, right? Uh, th this idea of not having kids and that sex is bad, you shouldn't even have sex with your spouse, right? That's very not Jewish, right? You'll find a thousand texts against it <laughs> in Judaism. I mean, that's a benefit to the, to the, to the, uh, the Jewish power structure. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can look at this. No, it's not a benefit to the Jewish power structure, right? 
Christianity, despite those aspects of its theory, has been natalist from the beginning, otherwise it would not have survived. Those sects of Christianity that are anti-natalist have died out, just as you would expect. It's happening um, today as well, because I, I, I do think that Christianity, the impulse of Christianity is an impulse that you can see in a variety of different movements. And I am, in, on, I am fully on board with you in terms of conservation of the natural world. Uh, that being said, uh, you can also see some really toxic little drops of poison placed in that movement. Um, I, I, you know, granted that these are just anecdotal, but you know, you can find people who will do these confessional videos on TikTok or, or YouTube where they're saying, you know, global warming is here and this is why I have decided to never have children and, you know, you're welcome world, you know, I, I'm producing my books. Okay, I, I get that on some level, to be fair, but this highly intelligent, thoughtful, open-minded person is kind of exactly the type of person that we would want to reproduce. You know, the, the people living in abject poverty in a favela are not going to hear heed the warnings of global warming. Uh, they're just going to go. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, the very people who are so concerned about global warming, all right, those you know, socially aware people are the types you want to reproduce. All right, so we're in a dysgenic spiral because people who are the most socially aware and the most intelligent and the most educated, all right, they're the ones who are least likely to reproduce. And those who are the least thinking, those who are the least contemplative, all right, they're the ones most likely to reproduce. So how do we encourage the better sorts to reproduce and discourage right, those who we don't want to reproduce their bad character traits? Ah, oh, this is the magnificent Sydney Opera House to make you cavell the beautiful Friday afternoon in the city. Logan used to work on that bridge, mate. Okay, look at these beautiful seats. Look at that lovely golden hue. Okay. Let's get back to conversation with philosopher David Skurbina. Go and have a bunch of sex. Uh, understandably. Uh, but so it's, there is a kind of radical dysgenic poison that, that you can see that, that, that comes in these uh, it, it comes in these left wing I mean I'm using the, left, the word left loosely here but it comes do I walk on the streets at night where there are bars and clubs only a little bit I've only done that accidentally so I've kind of reverted to my 56 year old self I'm sure there are obnoxious tourists I haven't encountered any I haven't encountered any obnoxiousness am I heading to King's Cross later no, I'm not heading to King's Cross later, mate. I'm heading to shore later, like a holy Jew. Comes in these movements, and you can just see someone almost in real time who, who has, might have had very good instincts, kind of naturally get poisoned. I, I could even go further in, in terms of the transgender issue and so on. I mean, the, these are, whatever else you want to say about them, uh, they are radically anti-natalist visions of the world. And Yes, they are, right? And I think it comes from Hellenic mystery cult religion. Yeah, there's probably some organized crime in Sydney, 
but not very much. And it's much better to have organized crime than disorganized crime. What you don't want is unorganized crime. So organized crime only kills people who are in the game. So there used to be a Jewish mob boss, Abe Saffron, I think was perhaps headquartered in they King's Cross. actually have an effect on the population, even in a fairly small way. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, the, 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 obviously there's different issues coming together here, but I mean, there's right. no doubt that the planet is massively overpopulated by humans. In fact, today, maybe you know, today... Yes, there is a doubt. All right, it's not at all clear that the planet is uh, massively overpopulated by humans. Right, I think we can handle 8 billion. It's the 8 billion human day. You probably saw that, right? The, the UN today, uh, November 15th, they officially declared that today we now have 8 so this philosopher, David Skirbina, he, he wrote for, he, he ran for office for the Green Party. Man, I wish they'd turned down that music blaring in the background. Abe Saffron sounds like a character in an Evelyn War novel. So just one F, I believe, in Saffron. I think he may have been Jewish. Yeah, organized criminals tend to have gang truces. They respect each other's territories. Less random shootings. Yeah, clean city. Look at this. You know, no trash, no graffiti. But certainly for the whole, for 99% of human existence, I mean, it was like, yeah, you know, a quarter of a few million. Yeah. And that's how the planet evolved. You know, the other life forms evolved, and we all kind of were in balance, and are, you know, the typical kind of evolutionary story. And then we hit the industrial revolution, and zoom, you know, we, we monopolize ourselves. And yeah, of course, that throws everything out of balance. And now the planet is, in fact, massively overpopulated. Jim Bell. But you're right, you tend to have people who volunteer to be fewer people are the ones that you wanted more of, and vice versa. You're going to get fewer that were just the consumers and just the random reproducers. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's starting to be a more Christian story. Right. Um, I, yeah, you kind of want to kind of want to bring that bit back. You kind of want to bring back the Christian message and say, you know, hey, masses, masses, you don't actually really need to have 12 kids, you know. Maybe one or two would be okay, and you're going to live forever. <laughs> so this guy, David Skirbina, yeah, the stream went down for 15 seconds, but this guy speaking, a philosopher, David Scavina, he wrote for the, he ran for office for the Green Party. He's also an active member of BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction Israel. And uh, he works at a university in Michigan. And he says that uh, 90% of the Arab students support BDS. more than they want to have large families. If you, if you pull people, they will say, oh, I would have one child or two children. But understandably, I'm not casting judgment. I mean, particularly me, I'm not casting judgment. Um, they want to have sex. Um, so it just seems like uh, there could be some kind of reasonable solution to that that, that allows them to enjoy life. Sex is a part of life. Um, and to enjoy life, uh, but um, not to, to create situations that they can't certainly sustain and, and the world can't sustain. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's let's go back uh, to, to Christian. So was it, was it Paul who developed the innovation of bringing... The Jewish message to the Gentiles. Um, was that kind of yes. his major innovation? Yeah. Yes. In fact, he says that explicitly. Right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Right. So he took that on his on his, you know, himself. For whatever reason, he felt the most confident, the most capable of like, I know those Gentiles. I can speak their language. I know what motivates them. I will. Yeah. Jim says that Abe Saffron, yeah. going back to the 1950s, 60s, maybe the 70s, was the most powerful organized crime gangster in Australia. We'll pitch this message to them. So he took that on, and he, that was kind of what he... So, yeah, the Apostle Paul was the Apostle to the Gentiles. Right, prior to Paul, Jesus' movement was entirely aimed at uh, the Jews. Then Paul came along. 
they had other people who were working on the Jews. So they, they kind of had a problem in this internal Jewish community. That they so Abe Saffron ran King's Cross, which is like the vice, was the vice capital of Sydney. And Australia used to have very strict censorship, anti-pornography laws, but uh, there are a lot of Jewish lawyers and publishers who managed to open up Australia's free speech laws and legalize pornography. And that really got going in 1969 with Portnoy's Complaint. So Portnoy's Complaint was initially banned in Australia, and then some Jewish lawyers got involved, and they managed to legalize literature like Portnoy's Complaint, and that led to the legalization of uh, pornography in general. So Jews led the way, opening up sexual expression in King's Cross, and Abe Saffron was the, the king of vice in King's Cross. King's Cross was the, the vice the vice capital of Australia. Yeah, it's a very popular message. Tell people they can live forever. Like if you, that's your primary concern, your individual salvation, live forever. Christianity does that better than anyone. Why do you think it failed among the Jews, and, and at least eventually? I mean, obviously the first Christians were Jews, but why did it fail? Or was there another story? Are we, did it just fail? Why did it fail with the Jews? Because it's so much the antithesis of the Jewish tradition, that God cannot become man. You don't get individual eternal salvation just by believing some things. Like individual salvation is not the focus in Judaism. It's more community-oriented and is more this-worldly oriented than next-worldly. So what Paul was selling is a heavily pagan, Hellenic, mystery cult religion with a Jewish gloss. Yeah, it didn't fail. We're just a part of Jews. Jews, more than any other people, are the most resistant to the claims of Christianity because Jews were the most likely to know the Jewish text, the Hebrew Bible, and recognize that uh, Christianity was not a compliment to this text. I, I think Paul never, I think he was just, uh, I don't mind. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, that was a tendency, don't you think? Or, yeah. Jesus, if, if we imagine a kind of minimal Jesus, but that is part of the Mayans were probably existing. Yeah. Was he, like what are your thoughts on that? I, don't I, know, I, 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 I think the Orthodox Jews were, were stuck to their warrior yeah. king, kind of savior. Yeah, the Jews were like uh, Donald Trump. Their war heroes didn't get captured, right? Like, what kind of people glorify war heroes who are only heroic for getting captured? Right? That's not the, the Jewish perspective. Uh, Jewish heroes make a difference in this world, right? If you don't make a difference in this world, you're not a Jewish hero. Yeah, when you don't follow anything. All right, when you don't succeed with anything, right, that was predicted that the Messiah would accomplish, all right, you're 0 for 50, all right, then uh, Jews aren't going to buy in.
So, no, it's not a matter of, I think Christianity is bunk. I'm, I'm sure Christianity is a valid road to God for many people. It's, a, it's one hero system among thousands of hero systems, and having a hero system is an absolute biological necessity. You can't live without a hero system. So, Christianity works for many people. Man, I'm trying to do a live stream here. I did have to blare music in the background. Yeah, so the anti-Jewish passages in the New Testament take place within the context of intra-Jewish disputes. Yeah, without Christianity, there'd be no 12 steps. 12-step movement comes very much out of American Protestant Christianity. So when I found myself back in churches, in Protestant churches, going to 12-step meetings over the past 11 years, I think, you know, how the hell did my life life turn out this way? Never thought I'd have to enter a church again. Thought I completely left that behind. But my life goes full circle. Keep ending up at Protestant churches, going to 12-step meetings. So Jews have low murder rates, right? Jews don't tend to commit a lot of violent crime, but uh, they do tend to be verbally violent. So Mark was the first gospel written around year 70. Then Matthew was, was written about five, ten years later. Mark was written after Matthew, and then John was written around year 110 of the Common Era. I've been talking with my 12-step sponsees that uh, belief in God really necessarily does nothing. Right? It's it's the your experience with God. Like many of my sponsees know, we believed in God when we were still participating in our ridiculous addictions, and where we started to get recovery was when we got some kind of visceral experience of God, 
And the way that I get that primarily is by listening to 12-step talks and attending 12-step meetings. Uh, other people may get to prayer and meditation, but there's all the world of difference in a practical sense between believing in God and having an experience of God, having a visceral connection with God, like getting wired up to God. Like if you've got a power source and you don't plug into it, just believing in the power source doesn't do anything for you. So I found 12-step tremendously helpful in learning to plug into the power source. Yeah, God is a verb. There's a whole theology about God as a verb. And this kind of nice guy with a beard looking out over us. It, it just, it seems, and the degree to which Christians aren't aware of their own religion, um, that they... So even people who are religious lead, you know, far more secular lives than a hundred years ago. Because we increase and non-religious explanations of around us, we you know work in an economy that's not regulated by religion. Right, our world steadily becomes more neoliberal, more economically efficient, and there's you know less and less enchantment and magic in the world around us. They couldn't actually even tell you the most basic story uh, of the religion that they follow. It's actually pretty remarkable. Uh, there, there has been a kind of dumbing down, and we're kind of moving out of a middle-class society. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what are your thoughts of these things moving forward? Because I, at least from my view, there seems to be a lot of countervailing movements. I, I could very well imagine, out of this secular postmodern world, a really strong fundamentalism arising out of it. So I don't see any way to reverse the steady decline in the power of religion. Right. I just don't see how that can be reversed in the the Western world. I just don't see how the Western world industrialized societies become more religious in the years ahead. We now have the first secular societies, Northern Europe. Protestant countries secularized before Roman Catholic ones because Protestantism has been refined to being more a matter of the heart than of practice. Uh, Catholicism retains rituals, so it retains some more elements of magic and mystery. The northern European countries, the Scandinavian countries, the first overwhelmingly secular societies in human history. And uh, that hasn't been followed by a massive moral decline either. Like It used to be considered inconceivable how will a society survive if it's not religious, if it's not God-fearing. Well, it seems to go on pretty much as it did before. Bye-bye. G'day mate, 40 here by the Sydney Opera House. So I'm listening to this uh, New Yorker article on do we change over the course of our life, right? There are some people who see things more in terms of you know, staying the same, continuity, and other people who see themselves more in terms of distinct phases. But uh, there's one breakdown of personalities from study at University of Dunedin in New Zealand. And they divide people into three camps that there are those who move towards life. Right, so I think that would be roughly compatible with the secure attachment. So when people like you and you like them and they're good for you, you move towards them. When people treat you badly, you move away from them. So so that's probably the dominant personality type where you move towards life, you move towards people. And then there are those who move away from people. So if you're 
joining a new school in eighth grade, right, those who move towards will make friends, join clubs, uh, get socially active. And then those who move away will read a lot of books. So I guess I'm a personality that likes to move away. And then those who move against will cause trouble. So you've got a part of me that likes to move towards life, a large part of me that likes to move away from life and live stream and read books. And then another part of me that likes to move against life. And this refers to the criminally inclined and the thrill seekers. So I've got some, some thrill seeking personality traits. But I think you, you see these tendencies all around you. There are those who, there are those who move towards other people, towards connection. There are those who move away. Then there are those who move against. And so if you have a relationship with someone who moves away, then that person's not likely to be very social. Right? And if you have to take them to a lot of social events, they're going to need a lot of time on their own. So we're probably talking about an avoidant personality. Then someone who moves against the world, right? Talking about someone who's low in, in agreeableness. It's going to create a lot of turbulence. It's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. Right? So easiest relationships, I would think, would be two people who tend towards, move towards life, towards each other towards other people, towards connection. And if you get a marriage between someone who moves towards and someone who moves away, I think there'd be a lot of emptiness and lack of connection. And if someone who moves towards life marries someone who moves against life, against the world, right? again, a lot of conflict. I have a hard time imagining that would go too well. There are socially effective personalities and less socially effective personalities. So socially effective personalities, above average in agreeableness, above average in conscientiousness, more extroverted than introverted, open to new experience, and low in neuroticism. And Jews, generally speaking, have these types of personalities. Right? These are the personalities that tend to make for success in life. To be more extroverted than introverted, to be less erotic, to have openness to new experience, to be more conscientious than average, and to be more agreeable than disagreeable. Right? People who are more agreeable, they're obviously going to get along better with other people, they're going to have a better reputation in the community, people are more likely to like them. So there, there are studies that show that Jews have more socially effective personalities. Now we can shape our personality to some degree. We all tend to become more conscientious as we age, we tend to become more agreeable as we age, we tend to become less neurotic as we age. And we can do concrete things to become more conscientious, more agreeable, 
more extroverted, more open, this new experience, and less neurotic. And we're looking out at the beautiful Sydney Harbour. There's the Sydney Harbour Bridge, there are tours where you can walk to the top. You can see a bunch of people atop the Sydney Harbour Bridge right now.